Hello and welcome to my podcast Neurific. I'm your host, Fabienne Hübener, and today I'm going to talk to Anne Churchland. She's a neuroscientist working at Cold Spring Harbor in New York, and she's investigating neurocircuits behind multisensory decision-making. Hello Anne, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Please let us know what exactly do you mean by multisensory decision-making? My lab is interested broadly in understanding how we make decisions. And one of the things that in my mind really defines a decision and, and distinguishes it from simple sensory motor reflexes is that decisions put together different kinds of information and use them to guide action. So for example, we might be walking through, uh, walking in, in the evening and sort of hear a rustling in the bushes and see a little something behind the leaves and we need to make a decision. Is that something innocuous like a squirrel and we can, you know, just keep going? Or maybe it's something a little more dangerous like a fox and we should run away. And by putting together different pieces of information, like for in that example, the visual information from seeing the leaves and the auditory information from hearing them, we're in a better position to make a good decision about how to act. This sounds like it has never been addressed before. Is this something so new to really look at the integration of the senses in decision making? That's a really interesting question. There, there is a body of research on multisensory processing. Um, most of it has been done in the human psychological literature. And that was partly what inspired my approach. In fact, we, we looked at a series of really interesting human studies done by Robbie Jacobs and Ioni Fine and Ernst and Banks and, uh, and took advantage of the theoretical foundation that their work had established. But in the, in the realm of people like me who use animal models to gain insight into brain function, it's a little bit different. There's there there certainly is some really foundational work in multisensory, but most scientists work on one modality. It's almost sort of part of your identity. Like before I got into this field, I was a vision scientist and I went to the vision meetings and I hung out with the vision people and I went to the vision summer courses. So I was, I was a vision scientist. And the idea of studying another modality sort of wasn't part of my mindset at all. And I think there's a lot of neuroscientists like that. They tend to specialize on one sensory system, even though merging information across the senses is really the default operation of how brains work, how humans and animals operate under normal circumstances. And what was the defining moment where you decided, okay, I'm the vision person, but I want to integrate more than vision? I think it was a realization that two things that I thought of as very different were really the same thing. So let me tell you about that. So when I was a postdoctoral fellow, before I had my own lab, I was a vision scientist and I was interested in how visual inputs are integrated over time. So for example, if something information is arriving slowly, how do you put those pieces of information together over time to make a decision? And I knew, of course, about multisensory literature a little bit, having read those papers, but I thought of it as a totally different thing. And then I had a moment where I realized, wait a minute, this, this, area, integration over time and vision that I know a lot about, maybe that applies to multisensory integration. Maybe it's just the same thing that in general there are brain me mechanisms that make it possible to take pieces of information and put them together. And I know about putting pieces of information together over time. Maybe that will help me understand how to put pieces of information together across modalities. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that realization that made me think, huh, maybe there's something the multisensory field can, can pull pieces of wisdom from the visual field to, to gain insight into mechanism.
Mm-hmm. And then you started experiments, I think, with rats at the beginning, or yeah. which animal was the first that you tested your ideas? I made a big switch in my career, actually. I had worked um, almost exclusively with uh, non-human primates, both as a graduate student and also as a postdoctoral fellow, um, working in Mike Shadlin's lab. And it, it had been a great experience for me. I think it's a really important model system because it shares many features with the human uh, human visual system, which is important. But it has a downside, too, and that's that there are fewer tools that are available for manipulating and measuring neural circuits in the primates. And so I decided, kind of through a fortuitous series of events, that it would be worth um, switching to a new model system to study uh, multisensory processing. And I should say that this at the time was viewed as a very, very risky move because I wanted to start my laboratory in multisensory decision making in rats and I actually had no experience in studying multisensory processing or in working with rats. Um, but I figured that this was really the right way to gain insight into the problem of decision making. And I felt that if there's, if, if you have an, an inroad into a problem, then it's worth it to, to go through the effort of developing the new technique, developing the new approach to really tackle that problem. And I was super fortunate that there were people at Cold Spring Harbor that, that believed in this approach and saw how innovative it was and were willing to take a risk on me and, and give me the resources to, to start my lab there. Um, and it's, it's really paid off. It's been a very successful approach so far. Tell us a little bit about your experiments. I think at the beginning you combined uh, visual information with auditory information. Mm -hmm. or how, how did that go? Yeah, we mainly do visual and auditory for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, first of all, because when we develop a behavior to study in rodents, we also study it in humans. We test it on ourselves, on our lab mates, on volunteers uh, from the laboratory, because we want to find strategies that are common across many species. And vision and audition are easy modalities to study in humans. Um, other modalities, for example, such as whisking uh, that, that uh, rodents do. We don't have whiskers, mo most of us. Few of us do, but mostly we don't. So that would be a hard one to do. Um, vision and audition also have something in common, which is that in both cases, the sensory information is streaming in. And that's really different from, say, smell, where you have no, no smell information, no smell information, and then suddenly you sniff and you have a ton of information. So it's kind of all or none. Whereas vision and audition, it's in both cases streaming in continuously. And I thought that that similarity between those two senses would make them a good place to start. But other kinds of multisensory combinations are, are present in behavior and are also very interesting. It was really for kind of logistical and practical reasons that I picked those two. Could you give us an example how they go together or maybe don't go together sometimes? That's right, yeah. So that's an example of what we call a conflict stimulus. And these don't occur very often in the natural world, um, but they are very useful for experimenters. And in those, in those stimuli, conflict stimuli, the auditory and visual information are different. And so by putting those cues in conflict, you can sometimes gain insight into how the different sensory signals are put together. So in the illusion that you're talking about, it's called the sound-induced double flash illusion, or just flash beep for short, because there are um, there's only one flash present, but there are, it, it is accompanied by two beeps. And almost everybody reports seeing two flashes. And this is an example where your auditory system tricks your visual system into thinking that there are two events, even though really only one occurred. 
And I, I like that illusion, actually, because we tend to think of ourselves as being visual creatures. You'll hear scientists talk about this a lot. Humans, we're very visual, and mice, well, they're very olfactory. And, and to my mind, that, that's the wrong way to think about it. What all organisms do is we go through the world, and we're very good at figuring out which sensory modality is more reliable. And we assign a greater weight to that modality. That is, it has a bigger influence on the decision when we put the sensory stimuli together. So when you're talking about space, vision is really king. As primates, we have awesome spatial vision. We're great at localizing things in space. We know where things are in space with our visual system. But when it comes to when things happened, our visual system's kind of sluggish, and it can be rather variable, whereas the auditory system is just dead on. So in flash beep, which is really has to do with the timing about when events occurred, the auditory system wins. And how did you use this kind of approach in your animal experiments? We um, we have a number of tasks that we use in, in the lab that are like the flash beep, that are auditory and visual. And they're also what, um, what I would call event-based in the sense that the decisions are based on um, discrete events that occur over time. And we have kind of technical reasons why those are convenient to use. Um, for flash beep, we don't actually train our animals to do that, although we've played around a little bit with it in the lab. Our main focus at the moment are stimuli that are not conflict stimuli, but they're um, what we call congruent, when auditory and visual are telling you the same thing. And the reason we study those is because in many circumstances, it makes your perception more precise or more accurate. Mm -hmm. and, and we all actually know this from our experience. So sometimes if you're in a crowded room and you're uh, listening to your cell phone, uh, it's really hard to tell what the person's saying. There's a lot of background noise. But if you're talking to someone face-to-face, -face, even if there's background noise, you get a lot of visual information from the movement of their lips, the movement of their hands, and you can, you can tell what they're saying much better. Your perception is greatly enhanced by the, by the multisensory stimulus. And that enhancement, the fact that we do better with multisensory stimuli, that's mainly what we're focusing on currently in the lab. Although we do use some conflict stimuli as well. And I saw videos on the rats, I think you train, mm -hmm. and they do like over thousands of experiments mm -hmm. uh, each day. And what were the results of these um, these industrious workers? Uh, yeah, they're pretty into the task. I think it's kind of like a video game for them. They you know they engage, they get rewarded. Um, well, we found out uh, a, a couple of interesting things. We found out that, that rodents, just like humans, are able to take multisensory information and put it together to make more accurate decisions. And, and that was exciting to see because it meant that we could use the rodents as a, as a model in the lab to understand the neural circuits. And that's by no means a foregone, foregone conclusion. Animal behavior is hard. And, and to get animals to demonstrate in a laboratory setting, something you know that they can probably do in a natural setting, is, is very tough to do. So that in and of itself was exciting. But there was, there was one piece beyond that that, to my mind, really was exciting. And that was not just that animals can put multisensory information together, but that, it, that they do it in a very clever way. And it's the, the kind of multisensory integration that I described a moment ago, where they're able to figure out which stimulus is more reliable and allow that stimulus to influence the decision more. And what we found is that the rats, just like the humans, are very close to the statistical opt statistically optimal prediction. So they're they're kind of doing some there are some circuits in their brain that are performing a rather complex uh, calculation, um, and are able to statistically optimally combine these two pieces of information to guide choice. From what I remember, you also tried to mess with that. You used optogenetics, I think, and other methods to disturb this kind of integration. What, what did you do there? 
We did. Well, we're, what we're trying to do is to find a place where by, by disrupting the neural activity that we disrupt multisensory integration. And we actually haven't found it yet. What we have found is parts of the brain where we can disrupt the, act, the, the um, activity of one modality. So we found that by looking at neurons in uh, what we currently call the posterior parietal cortex, kind of an association area in the brain. Could you uh, locate it for yeah, our listeners? Of, uh, <laughs> just, it's just in front of your, your visual cortex. So your visual cortex is in the back of the head, which is kind of weird since your eyes are at the front, mm -hmm. but there it is. Um, and just in front of that is the um, parietal cortex. Uh, and it's sort of thought of as an association area, although in rodents our understanding of its function is, is really emerging. And, and we disrupted neural activity there in, in a few different ways. We used some classic techniques that we borrowed from the, the old school uh, uh, neuroscientists and also some new optogenetic and chemogenetic approaches where we use light and also use chemicals to perturb the neural activity. Um, and through those experiments, <clears throat> we were able to <clears throat> excuse me, demonstrate that this area plays a causal role in the visual aspect of multisensory decisions, but not so much the auditory. The effects on auditory judgments were, were much weaker in this part of the brain. That's sort of surprising, or wouldn't you expect in an area where there's integration happening that both modalities are affected? You would, and actually that's why we concluded from this experiment that where that the, the posterior parietal cortex isn't really where that integration is taking place. It must be taking place somewhere else, and now, yeah. we're, trying to, now we're trying to find out where that is. <laughs> Frontal cortex, or do you have... Any guess where it could happen? There's a bunch of candidate areas. We are considering the frontal cortex, also um, the dorsal striatum, uh, and also the superior colliculus. It's tricky. There are lots of places in the brain where there are multisensory signals. But the problem is there are also lots of different kinds of multisensory integration that we do behaviorally, and they may be supported by different circuits. So to find the part of the brain that supports this particular kind of multisensory integration uh, sometimes means looking in a lot of different places. So we're trying that now. Do you plan also to use other mod modalities, for example, olfaction, because rats are very interested in smells? Um, they are very interested in smells, and I think thinking about how other modalities combine with smell is quite interesting. Um, for example, I think vision and smell can interact in an interesting way. You might imagine that if I brought out to you a, a delicious-looking, say, hamburger that was under a glass glass cover and it looked delicious, you'd think, oh, yes, I'd like to eat this. But if I then took off the cover and it smelled really terrible, you'd say, oh, forget it, I would never eat it. That, that would be another cue conflict mm -hmm. stimulus, and one in which actually your olfactions, olfactions system one, even though as a human your visual system is very good um, because your olfactory system is awesome at detecting bacteria, your visual system not so much. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting questions there. It's just a harder modality um, to study in the lab because it's hard to control the, um, the, the sensory stimuli that they tend to diffuse all over the place. It's hard to know where they are and how concentrated they are at the level of the animal's nose. Um, and also because sniffing is, um, the, the act of sniffing means that the information about smell arrives in kind of distinct packets rather than visual information which is coming in continuously. The insight that you have gained with your experiments, what does it tell us now about decision making? Is that really changing our view or is it just adding to, yeah, we know how it works and when we add another modality, then it works a little bit different. 
I think a few things. I think that the um, most influential things have been as follows. So first, I think it was surprising to a lot of people to realize that humans and, and simple rats use such similar neural computations for guiding multisensory decision making. Uh, and also that the, that the rats, the computations that we demonstrated in the rat are really quite clever and quite complex. Now, some people might not have been too surprised because they've maybe been battling with rodents in their apartments and they've been outsmarted by them. But, but in general, we tend to think of humans as having a very special, unique set of computations. And for many sorts of brain functions, they're probably shared across a lot of different species. And so I think that was surprising to people. Um, in, in terms of what I hope people will remember from this, uh, one interesting um, outcome that we discovered when we were comparing rats and humans, or, or actually when we were looking at humans specifically, was this. We sometimes would design experiments where there were different kinds of strategies that people could use. For example, they could make a judgment based on the number or the rate or diff different sort of aspects of the stimuli. And we designed the experiment so we could tease these different strategies apart. We wondered, were humans using strategy A or strategy B? So we set it up to distinguish those. We analyzed the data and, and you know, we could tell what they were doing. And the interesting part is when we then went back and asked the humans, well, so when you were doing this task, how did you solve the task? What strategy did you use? And we found that, interestingly, their self-report of the strategy that they used often had very little to do with the strategy that they actually used. <laughs> so they would say, well, that, well, actually, I was counting the stimulus. And we'd look at their data and say, no, you, you really weren't actually counting. And so I think, I think that's important because I think as humans, we sometimes carry around an incorrect intuition. We make decisions and we think, oh, yeah, I know why I made that decision. And the truth is that a lot of the times we don't. And, and sometimes we should be skeptical, sometimes uh, not, not just with perceptual judgments, but maybe we made a decision, decision about where to move or what job to take or who to hire for a job. And we think that we know the criteria we use to make those decisions, but sometimes I think we should second guess ourselves and say, wait, I made that decision and I think I know why I did it, but was that really why I did it? And try and dig a little deeper. You also try to figure out where the neural circuits are that are underlying this uh, sensory integration. Why is it so important to understand neural circuits? We also could just look at the connectome or use other methods. We really want to understand how it works, um, uh, partly because I think just knowing what the connectivity is won't tell us the whole story. And, and that's partly because of the reason that I that I highlighted a moment ago, which is that because there are so many different multisensory behaviors, if you find a multisensory circuit, it might not be it might not be the right one, right? So, for example, there are hardwired multisensory circuits in the superior colliculus that's in your in your midbrain back way back here. It's a very old phylogenetically old part of the brain, and they're hardwired in, and they're really there to to help you to localize things in space. The the um, auditory and the visual cells are kind of our signals are kind of lined up in the superior colliculus, but the kind of multisensory integration that we study in my lab it doesn't have anything to do with localizing things in space, and so those would would show up as multisensory pathways, but it isn't the circuit that's underlying this behavior. And so by going to a functional approach, manipulating the circuits, then we can start to to understand how they're playing a role. In, in behavior. And behavior ultimately is, is needed if you want to truly interpret this kind of data. If, if ultimately you want to understand how the brain is supporting behavior, you need to study the brain in the context of behavior. So would you 
say that people who are totally into connectomics and say we first have to understand the connectome of a rat brain, for example, then we know what the brain is about, can do that without behavior, or would you say, no, we need both? We, we absolutely need both, but they can happen in parallel, right? Like, we're, we're sort of frustrated by our lack of precise information about connectivity all the time, right? Like we'd like to know, okay, this part of, you know, the parietal cortex, does it maybe get more auditory input? Does this part get more visual input? We'd really like to know more about the connectivity. So I think that work is very important, but but it, it wouldn't be enough on its own. It's, it's not enough just to trace out the neural pathways. You have to know what they're actually doing. And you were already mentioning a couple of methods you are using. They're very important uh, for your work. What are the, the different methods that you're using in the lab in terms of optogenetics and two-photon microscopy? What else is there? Like you said, we use optogenetics. So we, we introduce artificial channels into the neurons. Um, uh, and we have a few different ways of doing that. And then when we shine light on the neurons, we can alter their firing rate, make them fire more, make them fire less. Um, uh, we also use what's called chemogenetics. So we can introduce synthetic receptors into the neurons. Neurons, again delivered by viruses and then when we later on um, provide the, the, the what's called the ligand the thing that connects to that receptor we can alter neural function that way neural responses that way um, we also use now um, in, a, in a new setup a new approach in the lab two photon microscopy um, uh, that was developed by in part Winfred Denk who's here uh, in Munich to image the neurons. So this approach is really useful in the sense that we can measure the activity of lots of neurons at the same time. And we also are able to tag them so we can we can measure their activity and then say, oh, this guy's an inhibitory neuron. Oh, this guy projects to motor cortex. And that is just a fundamentally different view than I ever had back in the days when I was just recording one neuron at a time with a sharp electrode. Uh, and then finally, um, we also have an approach that we uh, use called wide field imaging, where we, we're not imaging at the single neuron level, but a whole bunch of neurons um, at the same time, kind of brain-wide. We have a big, big window in the brain. We can see many different areas all at the same time. And this lacks the precision of the two-photon approach, but it gives us a very broad view and can kind of point us to parts of the brain that we maybe, maybe weren't really on our radar, we weren't really thinking about were important, and uh, kind of bring our attention there and tell us, oh yeah, this is a place where we really need to be looking to understand multi-sensory decision-making. And what are your plans for the next five to ten years? What's, uh, what are you aiming at right now? Well, I think our, our, our kind of few-year goal is to find the areas that I alluded to earlier, the ones that are really doing the job of multisensory integration. And we want to identify those by disrupting neural activity and seeing uh, effects on multisensory processing specifically. And then we want to go in with our two-photon or with our, our electrodes, depending on where it is, um, and understand how it is that the neurons within those places are making it possible to merge sensory inputs. And for some of the questions, it might be pretty simple, right? Like maybe the neurons are getting input from auditory cortex and input from visual cortex. But we want to know much more than that, right? Not just how do auditory and visual get there, but how are those inputs combined appropriately to allow the animals to do multisensory integration in such a sophisticated way. And that approach will, be, will require combining not just the manipulations and the neural measurements, but also sophisticated analysis and theory. And we collaborate closely with theoretical neuroscientists who can help us think about uh, the kinds of measures, measurements that we make um, in the context of different theoretical models and different, um, different analyses. I think 
um, thinking thinking kind of bigger than that, the direction that I like to see my own lab go and, and see the field go, field go as well, is to try and develop ways of measuring neural activity and measuring behavior that tap into what animals do a little bit more naturally. So we're pretty good at training animals to do um, perceptual judgments and to do them, as you mentioned before, again and again and again. Uh, and that's pretty useful because neural activity is variable. If we have the animal doing the same decision many times, we can start to make sense of that variability a little bit. But it, it also is pretty unnatural, right? Like what, what I do in, in my day is I wake up and I decide, am I going to have eggs for breakfast or toast? And I don't make that decision a thousand times. I, I make it once. Uh, and so what I'd like to be able to do is to measure lots of neuro, neural activity at the same time, lots and lots of neurons on, on many smaller numbers of decisions. And when those they're much more natural, like where am I going to go? What am I going to eat? How am I going to get there? Um, and I, I think I, moving in that direction will um, will will generate a lot of insight into brain function. Do you have any idea how these experiments would look like? How do you ask the rat, do you want an egg or a toast? I mean, you have to well, figure out new experimental mm -hmm. designs, or are you already working on that? We definitely have to figure out new experimental designs. I think one of the innovations is kind of on the technical side, which is that when we can record many, many neurons at the same time. How many can you we, record now? It depends a lot on the... the the species and things, but in my lab, in on the two photon setups, we usually can record between five and eight hundred neurons at the same time. And we're hoping to develop electrophysiological approaches where we can record several hundred uh, at a really fine temporal um, temporal scale. Other labs measure um, more than that, although sometimes with the trade-off of of not at a very fine time scale. Um, but if we can measure, the more neurons we can measure, then we don't have to have the animal doing the same decision many times and average over that. We can look at what happens just at the level of a single trial. So I think as these technical innovations continue to improve, um, which they really are, then I think we'll get closer to that to be able to look at single trial decision making starting to do it now but it's at an early stage and in terms of behavior i think it's gonna i think it's gonna be really interesting um i think it's gonna require some really creative thinking i um on the one hand it seems like the goal maybe is to just you know t take a mouse and put it out in the forest and have it run around um and somehow measuring its neural activity at the same time but i think we might be able to kind of distill the essence of what makes a behavior natural and what makes a behavior not so natural and kind of take the approach that we have so far and kind of tweak it a little bit and think about how animals really interact with their environment to help our stimuli evolve so that they're tapping into the circuits that animals use in in a more natural environment when I talk to you or other scientists, it really sounds like we are not there yet to understand neuronal circuits. But when I talk to computer scientists, they say, yeah, we are already working with artificial neural networks mm -hmm. and we know how to program artificial intelligence. We are very far already. And I remember your mother was giving a talk one month ago here, and I, I really remember when she said, um, artificial neural networks, it's not what it's cracked up to be. So what do you think about it? Are, are the scientists who are working with artificial intelligence already ready to use our knowledge about uh, neural circuits? Um, yeah, I think looking at the interplay between the people who are studying neural circuits in the context of biology and people that are building neural networks is 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 really interesting. And, and my hope is that each group will kind of influence the other. And I think that is happening. I think some people's... Um, uh, 
hesitation in terms of their enthusiasm for their neural network approach, and I, I guess I shouldn't speak for my mom, but probably her included, is that although these networks do do very sophisticated things in terms of classification, that's really only part of what we do as humans. Like, yes, we are good at, at certain kinds of tasks that networks are also good at, like face recognition. And these networks, deep learning networks, have made massive progress in this domain. You know, 20 years ago, it was, it was hopeless to try and identify a person based on a front face view and then a side view because those were different enough that the network would always be fooled. Now the networks are so much better and there have been advances in, in, in backpropagation and other aspects of the training of the networks that have just catapulted that field forward. So they, those networks can now do human-like things that they didn't used to be able to do. But as humans, we do do a lot more than that. We don't just classify images. Um, I mean, just to, to take a really rudimentary example, we have a motor system and we move through the world and, and the, ability to design a network that can move a plant that's like you know an arm or a leg or even an eyeball the way that we can that's a long way off and, and that's a big part of what our brain does right that's probably why we have brains right trees don't have brains why do we have brains well so we can move around mm -hmm. so that's a big part of, of what our brains are really doing and understanding that we're still a long way off so I have a ton of enthusiasm for the um, for these new networks, and it's been incredible to see deep learning take off and the success of Google DeepMind uh, winning at Go. It's it's wonderful to see, and and so I'm excited about that field. Um, and I, I think the two will will I hope move in parallel and learn from each other. And how should anyway neuroscience go ahead? What kind of research should be done in order to go forward? I think one of the things that's going to benefit neuroscience tremendously in the coming years is close collaborations between people who are theorists and people who are experimentalists. I think we're at the stage now where we need really sophisticated analyses and really creative models to interpret neural data. Uh, and I, th I mean that for the measurements that we take, for the perturbations that we do. These perturbations are doing really strange things to the network sometimes that we need to think deeply about if we really want to understand. And I think thinking about kind of collaborations in general is really the right way to go. Partly the one I just mentioned between experimentalists and theorists, but I think there needs to be even larger scale collaborations even than that. I think one of the things that's holding us back a lot as a field is that in the single PI lab approach, we end up duplicating a lot of each other's efforts, and we aren't coordinated enough. So PI, what sorry, is that principal. standing for? The, <laughs> the principal investigator, the person who's the head of the lab. And there can be small differences in the way that the behavioral apparatus is built or in the way that the animal's trained that make it very difficult um, to, to compare results across laboratories. And, and this is a big problem, right? It means that it's, it's not possible or not very easy to, um, to make sure that previous results are correct. That, that's really important. You need to duplicate things to make sure that the, that the results were right. Um, and it means you can't even really compare um, even labs that are doing really rather similar things. And so I think that groups of labs need to team up and to agree on how they're going to do things, to have a common approach to measuring behavior, to training behavior, to make it possible, uh, improve re reproducibility, improve the lab efficiency, and have a coordinated approach um, of the sort that's been successful in other fields.
There are two big projects, the Human Brain Project in Europe and something similar in the States. Do you think they are doing what you were saying, that they're really cooperating on a larger level? So yes and no. Yeah, it, it's been really great to see both of those um, uh, initiatives take off. Um, I know more about the Brain Initiative uh, in the U.S. because my um, institution is U.S.-based, and it's absolutely a step in the right direction. Most of those collaborations are about kind of five, six lab-sized, and this was a big step forward. Now there's a, a, a good number of teams on that size that are starting to work together. Um, I think now we're ready to go to the next level, maybe not five or six labs, but maybe you know, 20 or 25 labs. Um, that's a that's a much harder problem. You have to think about data storage. You have to think about shared computing. You have to think about shared physical hardware for um, collecting measurements and so on. So it's it's a big jump, but I think it's about the right size jump to kind of move from uh, medium-sized collaborations to to the ones that are starting to be on the scale of those that have been effective um, uh, in in other fields like physics, like detecting gravitational waves, um, for example. Some people doubt that neuroscience is already so far along that uh, these big projects make sense. Would you say, no, now we can do the step? I think now is the time to do it. I think we, it's clear that we need to be very thoughtful about how the collaborations are going to work. What is going to be the problem that's tackled? Who is going to be on the team? How are the different kinds of tasks going to be divided up? How will progress be measured? Um, I think Those are hard questions for, for any organization. And I think as neuroscientists, we just aren't really used to thinking about larger organizations. We, we all kind of grew up in single principal investigator laboratories and then started our own. And it is a big transition. We're going to have to get uh, advice from other fields. Um, but I think we can do it. I think that the success of other initiatives, even in biology, um, uh, is evident. Like the ENCODE project, for example, which was in molecular biology and genetics, um, was involved very large scale collaboration um, across many labs. And I think as neuroscientists, by by getting leadership advice and organizational advice from other kinds of, of um, successful collaborations, we can start to move in that direction. Both of your parents are into neuroscience. Your brother is also a professor of neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a strong family background in this field. If you would not have become a neuroscientist, what would you have done? That's a great question. I'm struggling to answer it only actually because I'm interested in a lot of different things. I think as a as a younger person, when I, I was thinking about what to do, I was really interested in teaching. I thought it was amazing to see, especially early in development, to see uh, kids acquiring complex cognitive skills like math and reading, and that was really amazing to me um, to watch uh, how how students were able to do that. So I think back then I kind of felt pulled in that direction, and then realized that actually for me the most exciting part of that was was watching the learning and understanding the, the learning, and that was kind of ultimately what brought me um, to neuroscience. I think now um, my perspective might be kind of different. Although I still have the greatest admiration and respect for teachers, I think it might be a, I think it's a hard job. I'm not sure I could do it. Um, I think now when I think about it, one of the things I really love about neuroscience and about my own lab's approach is I love how we bring um, quantitative tools to the problem and start to understand behavior and understanding um, uh, neural activity by bringing the right tools and models to the problem. So I think actually I would be interested in, in other fields where there are interesting uh, mathematical tools 
tools for looking at large data sets. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's actually a lot of fields like that, even in, in, in very different fields like finance, for example. People are using models to understand the kinds of um, uh, decisions that people make and how um, stocks are bought and sold. And so I think I would enjoy something like that. Thank you very much for your time, for the interview. I, I'm looking forward to your talk tomorrow. And have a nice dinner here in Munich tonight. Thank you very much.